I did a little experiment recently where I tracked all the different ways I interacted with service fees and tips in my day-to-day. Even though I'm aware that tipping is a thing I frequently do, I was really surprised at how frequent and how diverse these financial exchanges turned out to be in just a short period of time. There were plenty of -of point-of-sale screens, those now ubiquitous coffee shop and to-go counter service systems that have those pre-programmed tip options. Some offered me percentages, others flat dollar amounts. I definitely declined some of those screen prompts and instead, super old school style, stuffed dollar bills into some countertop jars. And then there were a few meals out, drinks and small plates one night where the 20% gratuity was automatically included, a dinner with my girlfriend's family, Brazilians who order with gusto and abundance and make great dining company where I paused at a 3% service fee added before taxes or tips. I don't think I've encountered this structure before where it's assumed you'll tip on top of the service fee before. And I'm just telling you about the coffee and food so far. Unless you don't interact with the outside world much, I know you've encountered some sort of service fee or tip lately. Maybe it was even this morning and possibly types of fees and forms of gratuity that you haven't encountered before the past year or two. Which is to say, the rules of how to pay at restaurants and eating establishments have been changing lately, with lots of pushback, confusion, and if you take a scroll through restaurant Yelp reviews, some truly wild levels of belligerence from patrons. I've been interested in digging into what's happening here, mostly because the economics of the restaurant industry have always been pretty weird and rife with inequity. Tipping has never not been a contentious topic, both, I think, because the practice here in the U.S. comes out of the legacy of slavery and certainly facilitates racism and sexism, but also because ultimately... Tipped wages shift a portion of compensation obligations from employers directly to customers, and that kind of puts everybody in a weird spot. At the root of the experiments with service fees, dining fees, mandatory gratuity, are a lot of people figuring out. At the root of the experiments with service fees, dining fees, and mandatory gratuity, are a lot of people figuring out how to hold together a broken industry and model. An industry with legendarily slim margins built on long hours put in by low-waged workers. I double-checked while working on this episode, and the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers is still $2.13. $2.13 let that sink in. And while there are still plenty of shitty operators out there, just Google restaurant wage theft for a little sampling, I of course wanted to talk to some of the folks that are trying their best to break the model in the direction of care. To push back against the intense hours and low wages, the abusive kitchen culture, the lack of benefits and paid time off, the class divisions between front of house and back of house, and yes, even the low margins. So I'm excited to bring you this conversation today with Jennifer Zavala, owner of Juana Tamale, a Philly restaurant that's been described as a punk rock Pee Wee's Playhouse, 
and whose tacos have been voted best in the city. Juana Tamale started as a popular pop-up at a music venue before Jennifer took the mid-pandemic leap of opening her own spot in South Philly. And she's been doing things differently, including setting the business up to pay her team a living wage since she opened. And because she's taken a stance, she's caught a lot of flack. We chatted after the recording about some of the press she's gotten recently that seemed more interested in raising a ruckus than treating her choices and message with the seriousness they deserve. Jennifer would probably be the first to say that she hasn't figured it all out. And honestly, no one restaurant owner is going to be able to change a broken system. But while that's true, we still need examples of folks pushing back against inequitable norms because they also show us what else might be possible. Thanks for listening. Hi, Jennifer. I'm really excited to talk to you today about the state of the messy-ass restaurant industry. And I wanted to start to just hear you talk about your work and Juana Tamale in your own words and, and kind of what, what's most important to you and how you run your restaurant. So I think, um, you know, why I wanted to do this, I make light of it that I never wanted to do this. And I think that I'm, I'm never really clear on what I mean, but I, I love it. The business part of it is a whole, is just a whole different thing. And I think that there really isn't any blurred lines, so to speak, when it comes to that, right? Like, you cook and then there's business yep. and they kind of, you know, art and finding it in some way, just the money is, you know, comes with challenges. And I feel that after 27 years, I can't believe I'm saying that out loud continuously, of working as a woman, as a woman of color, as a mom in this business, I was like, I would be a fool to not to pretend like I didn't learn anything, yeah. to want to be better. And I think that during the pandemic, it really, really confirmed that for me based on how people in my industry were handled. Yeah. It was rough. It was yeah. personally rough watching mostly, I would say, more solitude issues than anything else. Can you say more what you mean by that? Well, you think about the amount of hours each person has to work yeah. in their job to just maintain their, their, their life, right? Rent and things like that. You can do the math in your head, an average person in Philadelphia. Okay, well, you know our industry based on what restaurant do they work for? What is their hourly rate? So if they're making minimum wage, they're going to be working, you know, an exponential amount of regular hours. And... What is your social life like? Most restaurant people don't have one. I don't, if you're in front of the house or back right. of the house, you don't really have a social life. So now all of a sudden, everything comes to a reaching halt and you're alone. You are literally alone. There isn't like a familiarity of a group of people you can migrate to. It's other people in your industry or in your bubble of, of restaurant friends. All of us are losing our shit, so we're hard to reach each other. You know, like, someone's going through massive depression. Someone's freaking out. Like, overall, none of us have insurance. 
And really what I saw was people breaking down. Like it, it was almost like because your body stopped doing that everyday grind, it really caught up with itself. Yeah. What I found in my purpose during the pandemic, I wasn't actively in a restaurant. I was doing catering out of a music venue and also helping their food program. So when you came to shows, you could have something to eat because there wasn't a lot around there. And it was going great. And I, I loved it. And then the pandemic hit and the music venue underground art independently owned had a very small staff. They worked really hard and there was, there was definitely going to be no show anytime soon. In brainstorming, we came up with this thing. I was like, I'll do this taco, you sell drinks. And it it just blew up crazy. And people were coming out for the first time during this pandemic in months. And they came to get these tacos. A lot of things were happening at that time. You know, you know what was happening with like George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. And like for some reason, I captivated people's attention. And I felt like, okay, between this pandemic, what's happening on this side, right? As far as like the activism space and in the middle, right? It's kind of an opportunity to influence some change when people are really looking for that. And I felt like I have all this momentum and I've, believe I have all this support and decided to go for it. Meaning you, you opened a restaurant. I opened a restaurant. Yeah. I did it. Um, terrified. I was absolutely terrified and so scared, especially coming off the pandemic. So everything I did was extremely cautious. And this lease was a three-year lease. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I can do this. Even if I do horrible, <laughs> it's only three years and that time yeah. will fly. But when I took the three months off to pursue this restaurant, um, everybody started doing kind of the same taco. It started to come up with, you know, I was the only one doing it at the time. And then closing for three months, it, you saw it everywhere. Was that a, like, copycat phenomenon? How do you think about seeing that? So how I see it is the competitive person within myself you know, it's like, damn it. But who was doing it made it a lot easier to process it as a positive thing because it was other like Latino restaurants were doing. Yeah. And where I would have probably taken issue more so with it happening, especially knowing the challenges that, you know, everybody went through during COVID, but especially with the marginalized communities. So it made it a lot easier to digest. And I still feel very confident that I'm, you know, I offer something different. Everybody offers something different. And during my time to open, I would very much share, go here and go here to share the support because you can't really have a bad one. And what is great versus what is good is or bad is so subjective. So, you know, I'm, it doesn't bother me too much. But I also knew that the reason why I was opening Juan Itamale was not about the food because I knew eventually 
everyone was going to be able to make this taco. It was more the, the blueprint of what I was trying to do that I was hoping to ultimately create my legacy with. Would you describe the taco? It is a Mexican French dip. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is a slow braised meat. Traditionally started with, you know, how people knew it was with goat. Um, when my grandmother made it, she made it with goat. Um, I never favored goat particularly. And in having a restaurant, the yield isn't as, as good as, mm-hmm. you know, beef. It is slow braised in a variety of chilies. And it is put inside of a crisp, dipped in this chili oil, corn tortilla. Almost like a hard shell, but not quite. Cheese or no cheese, your option. And then that chili braised meat goes on top of that. Mm-hmm. You fold it over and then all of the juices that you cook, you know, the bones, the beef in, the chili, you you dip your taco in. And um, it's so sensational. <laughs> and I get so excited sometimes when I still see them coming out. I'm like, oh, that smells so good. It just smells so good. And... Love it. Um, I'm curious, you know, especially choosing to open a restaurant in this like massive upheaval of the industry that's happened in the last few years. And I, I can't really think of a, at least like publicly a industry that has had more disruption than the restaurant world and like food service world. Um, and I'm curious to hear about some of the intentional choices you made about doing things differently. You know, all of the dark underbelly and like the yeah. shitty things that people do and the like grind of it and stuff like that. And so when you undertook this adventure to open your own restaurant, what are some of the choices you made to do things differently? There was a very pivotal moment for me that I said, well, if I ever open, get my own plate, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Like a non-negotiable factor. I needed help at one of, one of my pop-ups and one of my friend's sons, who was like 17, um, had you know, his service had been, services had been offered. And this was his first restaurant job. Very smart kid. Um, I love him. He's very charming, very personable. And I was like, this is great. And I take that very seriously when people, you know, support their children working in my place. One, because, you know, look at me. And two, you know, I, I value that so much. This is this person's first job mm-hmm. and I want to make sure that I'm I am something that they can look up to and learn from and want to learn from. and I taught him how to do this what we're going to do and the customers come and blah 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 and he was like okay great um this woman didn't want onions on her taco and he brought the tacos out to her and she got the tacos she opened it and there were onions and this woman absolutely like berated him and was just like almost like how could you do this and he was on the tide i will never Uh forget that he came back into the kitchen like shaking and and fell awful like he had completely just ruined someone's life and had to walk away 
And I'm like so mortified that this, I just, I brought you in here and this is what I have happened to on your first day. And that was a combination of when we did this pop-up, no one was tipping. Not one person tipped. We did the pop-up twice and no one tipped. Like there was like, you know, there's five people that were working, making cocktails um, as well. We were doing like, uh, what is it? A core container full of cocktails. Yeah. And no one was tipping. We did it twice. And so between that and that experience that this very young man had, I then in my mind was like, well, if I ever opened my own plate, there's a no tolerance policy for that. Because I'm going to have my son come work with me, who's also a teenager. I'm assuming more teenagers based on you know my demographic. And I'm ultimately responsible for the next generation's perception of, of what it's like to work in this industry. Yeah. And I take that so unbelievably seriously because I have one chance. They can go work somewhere else and who knows what they're walking into. There's so many issues that, you know, are in the dark corners of everyone's kitchen, you know, addiction, mental health issues, depression, and just a variety of things. And what I've wanted to at least put out as fast as I could, picturing my own child, is feeling empowered to be able to set a boundary up for yourself with a guest who is clearly overstepping their boundary. Yep. How to feel unafraid of at least replying and say, you know, I'm sorry that that happened. Gracefully, you know, grace under fire, go and make the situation right, rectify it. Or find someone to help support you. And that ultimately were the things that became and grew into 100% team person. I think a lot of this came up around masking, of course, and like vaccinations and stuff like that. And uh, like my brother and sister-in-law's restaurant, which I referenced to you in Denver, they had a... um, they had a mandatory vaccine policy for a while because they they needed to keep their staff safe. And so once they had people in the doors again and like my brother did the front of the house and sort of put himself between people that were having absolute meltdowns about their policies and, you know, their decision to put their staff safety first. But those guardrails feel like so important because and I would imagine this is sort of what you're talking about. If you don't do that as the the owner, then you're kind of leaving your team to fend for themselves in a certain way and kind of to figure out how to navigate things. So it's almost like, you know, you have to kind of create these like containers and policies for the business for how to handle all of the, you know, uptick in bad customer behavior uh, that seems to have increased or if it's not increased, the perception is that it's it's increased in the last few years. I think it has. I really, I really think it has. Because ultimately, you know, going into someone's business and questioning how they're doing business, so you can buy a cheeseburger, and you won't, you know, 
support them until they answer your questions on why you have that policy so they can feel like it's necessary. My stance is you don't get to tell me that. You don't get to tell me that, although I do appreciate it. I'm not someone who's not up to be able to take criticism because in reality, no one is ever going to be able to say anything as awful as things I say to myself. So it's like, okay, Barbara, if you want to yell at me, you can go ahead and yell at me. It's still 25 cents more because you want a large fry. Like that's, it's not, you know, <laughs> I think out of anybody, out of any industry, I, I fully believe this. I think this is part of the reason why we're a little misunderstood. I think out of any business, the restaurant industry is the one industry where you can go up to a manager, a person, and express your opinion about your experience. And they can take it. We are so thick-skinned. Like I'm telling you, lone people have an insane amount of tolerance for the stuff they have to put up with. Okay, yeah. that trickles down into every service industry, but especially restaurant people. Just go and communicate with that person and say, hey, my experience was X, Y, and Z. If you want to do a little sassy, go ahead. You don't have to be disrespectful or aggressive or this entitlement of like coming into a business and, and wanting it to change all around for you and then not being happy about it and then going and leaving reviews of experiences that didn't have to be. If yeah. you would have just said, yeah. excuse me, this is undercooked or I didn't get this. Because everybody, I guarantee, from the dishwasher to the host, hostess to you name it, everybody wants you to have a great experience and time when you come into their place. No one wants to ruin your day. And sometimes I don't think people read the room as far as the tone of society that we're in and put themselves in someone's shoes like, like mine or something. And not think that we're not experiencing that on a massive scale. And I had to kind of put those boundaries up on a very public stage and then continue to record my experience through my social media of why we have to include the gratuity, what experience the employee experiences, and then back to the owner and what that's like. So you have all these different kind of levels of understanding you have to shift your mind to when you say something like that and say you're going to do it because people are going to press you yeah. about your business practices that they don't have any business doing, but you know it's going to happen. So you just have to have grace under fire and kind of say, hey, listen, you could be a great tipper. There is no doubt and tell Betty you're a wonderful tipper, but there are 20 people behind you who I can't guarantee that. But it's not a punishment. It is policy that just protects your child if they were to work here. One of the things I wanted to get into is this service fees versus tipping and kind of this has been a hotly contested uh, thing that's been happening. And obviously, I mean, I know you've had a lot of yelling people on Yelp about <laughs> this and stuff like that. Like, this is very controversial. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm interested in sort of this 
the context of your restaurant in this decision and what the economics look like, because all of this ultimately boils down to taking care of your people. And, you know, ideally, like, you go to Europe and people have salaries and they have nationalized health care and like, it's a very, and, you know, it's just a totally different economic situation and context. And so, like, I think everybody I've talked to, operators that actually care about humans, because I know there's some that don't, but they'll like, kind of agree that the tipping service fee thing is all messed up. And yeah. the way people are paid is all messed up. And we all wish it would, you know, we could restructure the economy differently. Mm. So I want to kind of ground this in the fact that like, I'm not sure that anybody I've heard thinks that these are the perfect solutions to anything. Um, but I'm really curious about you know, you wanted to probably have a service fee. Is it 20%? Uh, we have a 20% gr- yeah. automatic okay. gratuity. Cool. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I'm curious about the context. Like you you referenced people not tipping at the, pot, uh, the pop-up and stuff like that and kind of talking through what's the context that made that the right decision and how does that help care for your team? I was curious. I had asked other people. Um, so after a second pop-up, um, and I, you know, everyone made like 20 bucks, like it, it was literally 20 bucks split between like five people. That's not cool. I, no, it was so <laughs> embarrassing. Oh my God. I'll never forget. I will never forget. I had, mind you, I'm like dragging these people from the music venue. I'm like, I got an idea because like I'm watching everybody panic and I'm like, my whole life has been a pandemic. So I feel like I am completely prepared for this moment and i willingly not because of any like circumstances wanted to sell tamales from a van because i thought that would be fun and i would get to drive around the city and just pop up on a corner and sell tamales like so pivoting which was like the the word of the pandemic was pretty easy for me and Mm -hmm. you know i knew business-wise how i could do based on prices and you know, numbers wise, how I was going to do What I saw, and I've never seen this before because I've always been a chef in a formal setting where you come and you sit down and you have servers and then they leave. I've never, so either this has been going on or I just was just been in a hole or I'm like, damn, the industry's changed. <laughs> what do people think service is? Like, what is service? By definition, we are providing that service by, you know, standard practice. There should be a gratuity received, not expected. It's a give and take relationship Mm -hmm. um, because that's how it works in a formal setting. And it wasn't happening. And I was like, well, what are you? I'm a well-known chef. Why wouldn't you tip? So I reached out to other people, other servers. I'm like, are you guys getting tips? People were like, yeah, making bank. It was like a server at Vernick and then uh-huh. somewhere over somewhere else. And I'm like, huh, that's not okay. So the fine dining, it was still working. The seemed. more fine dining, yeah. like casual places were still getting tips and they were doing to go. Yep. Did you ever think you would see like Vernick on Grubhub or, Frank. you know, over eight? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> Crazy, right? So I'm like, what's the difference? So... 
that really, for me, entirely started this conversation of working through and processing, like, especially when it came to my pricing of my food, right? So I, I definitely recognize I'm above average, you know, from what people are used to. Yep. You can go to the falafel truck and you can get a falafel platter for $8.99. Or you can go get one falafel from Zahav for $45 because my Falminov's name is attached to that. Yep. You're not paying for the falafel because if you wanted to pay for the falafel, you would go to the $4 falafel. You want to pay for the name. You don't just say, I ate at Zahav. You say, I ate at Zahav. Mike Stalinov owns it and or he was there. It adds to your tiny experience. And regardless, if you are in my demographic of someone who follows me and recognizes the things that I've done or, or do, then that matters to you. If yeah. you're not, you're offended that I'm charging $18 for three tacos. And to that, I was like, why? Why are they upset at that price? Regardless if they know who I am now, see, they don't, obviously, because they'd be like, Jen's crazy or whatever they say that dismisses me in confession. Why are they upset? And I really had to think about that. And I came to the conclusion that it wasn't the service. It wasn't, you know, the place or the type of food. It was more like people viewing you as a servant. Instead yeah. of providing a service and then looking at someone like me who identifies as a person of color and saying, well, you're not that much of a Mexican because I can go to a more authentic place and get it cheaper. Okay. Well, if you, un you undress that, let me tell you what's happening at that place. Right. The mom and pop are working like they don't see their kids or their kids are there or the whole family works there because they can't afford to have other people come in, can't afford to pay. Right. Because everyone thinks like that. I'm not going to go here because it's too expensive. So I'm going to go there. Well, you don't go. You don't go enough. So you're lying. Just something to be upset about because the way you're processing the service industry shows that for too long, it has been taken advantage of and abused and neglected and then became an essential worker during a worldwide pandemic to then come out and still not be valued or respected or cared for yeah. or given some sort of like verbal casserole of comfort. You guys carried this city. You fed emergency workers. For one year, we're going to, there's a program, something. I at least had to feel like I wasn't doing that each person who was taking a chance by believing in me and coming aboard. I had to feel like ultimately this person's livelihood matters more than mine. I also wonder, I think most people don't understand how restaurant wages work too. Like yeah. that we have this sub-minimum tipped wage somehow still... <laughs> like like yeah. just the the actual mechanics of it and and I think particularly like the mechanics of a tip because it's a very 
regulated type of wage. And I don't know that most like regular, like just people going to restaurants and stuff like that understand that that like through federal protection has to go to the servers. Like there's no other option. So it is a really like direct exchange, but like, I, I wonder because the the way that wages and sort of the whole structure of it has traditionally worked and the sub-minimum wage and things like that, uh, there's a shadiness about it almost. Like, this sort of, like, we're not sure how people are getting paid, but it's sort of about us and service mm-hmm. fees and that and stuff like that. And it seems to really just complicate the relationship, too, of, like, customers and sort of the expectations of them. Yeah. And, and I and I do wonder if that contributes to, especially now, so much of the friction. Yeah. I mean, I am not well off by any means. And I'm very conscious as a mom of kids, you know, I'm very aware of, you know, pricing and we offer a variety of things. You get to have every experience. So you're not from having the you know more expensive taco experience you can have it on a smaller scale and then if you want to save up and you know what i mean like get a, a bigger experience and go all out and i think in that right comes the fee versus gratuity issue but i want to be clear on where that manipulation comes in okay yeah by legal standards if they're on any menu and they popped up, especially after the pandemic, and you see fee, yep. kitchen fee, bar fee, that is 100% legally not required to go to the staff yep. at all. If it says kitchen, that does not mean kitchen staff. If, if it says kitchen staff fee, it doesn't have to go to the kitchen staff at all. The word completely takes away any obligation to give that money to any of the service people. Then taxing on the 20% gratuity on top of that um, is extremely egregious. And, you know, that's where the momentum from the guest builds up and then comes and puts that on someone like me, just tacos, who says, I require a 20% gratuity when you come in here. And by legal standards and legal words and laws, gratuity 100% guarantees that money goes right. to the staff. Yeah. And we pull our tips. Which um, means if I can, because I, I think this is stuff that people don't realize, which is, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're pulling your tips means that you're paying at least full minimum wage. Like you're not doing... Above minimum wage. Right. Or like at least or above. Yeah. Because if you if you were paying like say your front of the house sub minimum wage, then you can't fully pull to back of the house. Is that am I getting that right? Yes. Right. Yeah. And you can't and you can't be like a manager, you can't be right. Same rules they have in a bar. You can't be yep. Yeah. Which I just wanted to pull out because I think what you're saying is so important to this whole hotly contested thing because like we mentioned Zahav, they have a service fee now, I believe I heard. And I know a lot of these restaurants say that it's to for kitchen staff or it's for health insurance or like there's all these sort of references to it. But 
you know, it does, it pulls that money up into real income for the restaurant. Like that's how it actually ends up getting counted, which is very different from how tips and gratuities get treated, even just financially, like in the bookkeeping. Like my brother's contention is that like those 20% fees are getting skimmed, like that he's like, yeah, I think all of the the operators are skimming one to 3% off of that. And maybe the rest oh, yeah. of it's going to the so it's a way to pad your margin. Right. And they are not obligated to tell anyone. Yes, exactly. And it makes it also, you know, if it's t- if it's tips, the staff gets to see exactly what that was. If, yeah. it's, if it's a fee, you're sort of, you could be transparent about it or not, and you're probably not being transparent about it. Right. I, we offer uh, full transparency. So we have a, a square system. Mm-hmm. That automatically adds a twenty percent for every for every walk in. So we don't we don't add a twenty percent for every delivery because there's already fees on top of that. And I, you know the goal isn't to try to buy a yacht and be buy your house and saying look what right. you're you know, right. look what I got for you. <laughs> the goal is to have some balance as far as like I just want to pay my staff. They want to work here, and I, I would like to feel comfortable to go on vacation without having to, you know, nickel and dime, my, you know, going to the Jersey Shore. It's like. Which you're really just saying, like, have a supportive livelihood. Right. What you're saying is not wild. Everybody wants a living wage, and to yeah. open time to pay a living wage to the people you'd want to have a living wage. And that's the one thing. When I was interviewing people to come work, this is coming out of the pandemic. Now, we're not even fully out because Omicron was the last kind of like lap in the face before, you know, we really could move on, so to speak. Interviewing people and listening to their stories about where they were before the pandemic and where they are, it was more toxic than people I think realize yeah not to even say again I want to buy a yacht so the guy who comes in and tips me on the coffee at whose house I can drive by nobody says that everybody's like really just want to pay my rent and I want to have a little money to go get whatever I want again took that responsibility on was like I think I can do that and only being open three days Mm-hmm. Hang above minimum wage, adding on the gratuity would have definitely put those people in that position. And it did. Yeah. And then, you know, if they want to get another job, they can. But the the grind isn't doesn't have to be there. If you'll work very different from that, that mind space of I, I want to be here versus like survival. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um I had hoped to see that play out into beautiful stories individually for each person. One of the few positive things, and I kind of hate framing it this way, of all this upheaval, at least that I've seen in like the restaurant industry and the service industry is there have been so many more experiments and sort of changes and people 
kind of putting their stake into ground and saying, I'm not doing it this old way anymore. Right. You know, that you're, you can run a restaurant on three days a week. You don't have to work a hundred hours a week. You can pay people a living wage. Like there's, I think a lot of operators in the past were like, well, our margins are too thin. We can't pay people more. We can't do, you know, there was um, almost like a lack of imagination, if I'm mm. going to be generous about it, mm. <laughs> of like that things could possibly be different. Mm. And so I really appreciate seeing and hearing of like your reimagining what this industry can be and do and how it can work for people. I actually, I spoke at a city council meeting in regards to like the pay versus pay, you know, what what the difference is, you know, and why it needs to be different. And I got a lot of, um, well, restaurants can't afford to not have, you know, X, Y, and Z because then they'll close. And I, I heard this a lot. Like we can't pay them more. We can't pay the hourly more because then its margins are too small and it's going to break up. And I remember saying in that city council meeting in favor of the worker, if making these small changes is going to cause your business to go out of, out of business, imagine the whole industry is like, we're, we are like a hair in a way from breaking. And I, I'm over here like desperate and you know flailing my arms around actively sharing my journey as a woman a woman of color in 2023 in south philadelphia the challenges that i faced with my neighborhood to the, the city issues and saying like hey guys if i don't make it who's been a pro worker been pro this for a long time if i don't make it you all don't make and what you're seeing when you say, you know, there have been articles that have come out, the Philly restaurant industry is a boom. Sixty new restaurants have opened in the last, like, what? I don't remember the article. Sixty. Yeah. People didn't read the comment. Someone asked the question, but how many are closing? Mm-hmm. And Michael Klein replied, as many as there are open. But then also, and later publication saying it's on fire. No, there are individual chefs that are on fire. Yeah. Individual people who are doing great. But saying something like that and someone like me reading makes me feel like I am failing. I've taken a lot of time to analyze myself. You know, I listened to Heather's interview and I didn't want to go over a lot of the same things that other said because I would just be saying those same things. So I highly encourage anyone listening to go listen to that interview and then listen to this interview and understand that we are two women at the forefront of particular things in this industry telling the rest of you what's going on, whether you choose to listen or not, is, you know, totally up to you. But if you don't, it's your own fault. You didn't want to listen. And I think that also lends itself to that and people who, you know, want to come and work. What also the pandemic pushed in the forefront is the mental health issues that was the pre-existing condition before the pandemic happened. 
And after that, it 100% absolutely expedited that into the forefront. That's not very much spoken of is, yeah, there are a lot of toxic employers, a lot, but I think employees also have to ask themselves, like, there's no way I could work in this industry, be in this environment and not have some residual effect. I think collectively, we all need to take accountability for how we haven't made it better. Instead of being like, but I do this, it doesn't matter. We all have to work together. And I think for too long, everybody has tried to put lipstick on a pig and say, this white male chef is changing the game and neglecting to understand the underbelly not blamed, but just kind of like admitting in order for all of us to heal to be better. When I would told people what I was going to pay them working counter at Taco Shop and told them what my intentions were, and people were like, it, it, it's almost like the, the Sarah McLachlan song kicked on. It was like in the arms of an angel and the person was <laughs> getting there. Like, like, Curls up like the clouds like, part. <laughs> I get a week off. Like, I was like, oh my God. Definitely a driving force for me to want to continue doing that. So, to wrap one last question. Um, sure. What expectations? Would you like to see reset both on the side of restaurant operators, but also patrons of restaurants? I think I would like the idea that because you're paying for something, it doesn't mean anything more than a mistake was made and there should be grace to fix it because you are appreciated so much for coming and spending your hard-earned money here. And the idea in the back of the house that everything has to be perfect in order to be seen or deemed as successful. Chefs don't cook for guests, they cook for themselves. We are never satisfied even with our best dish going. And the idea that you are allowing a small mom-and-pop business room for error means you are going to grow with their confidence. I would like to see this, you know, purity comes with payment kind of thing gone. Thank you so much, Jennifer. This is a great conversation and I'm really excited for more people to hear you and everything you shared today. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Fridays. As always, you can find me, Kate Tyson, at wanderwellconsulting.com. And for more thoughts on restaurant economics and the whole confusing mess of service fees and tipping, head to katetyson.substack.com. Talk to you next time.